This is Top Floor, episode 54. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 54. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. It is budget season and there are department heads in hotels across the nation right now creating manual spreadsheets and completing boring repetitive tasks in order to prepare. Stephen Burke, founder of RoboSizeMe, aims to fix that. The winner of this year's E20X pitch competition at High Tech, Stephen is not new to hospitality technology. After two decades and enough travel for two lifetimes, Stephen successfully sold his last company and used the proceeds to bankroll this one. Today, we are going to talk about hospitality tech globetrotting, and the Witness Protection Program. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Tamika. And Stephen, I think this is a really interesting one. She says, I always hear about competitions and awards when the winners are announced. Is there an easy way to get ahead of this so I can participate? I realize this is not exactly about hospitality tech, but as the recent winner of E20X, I thought you might have some thoughts. I certainly do. What do you think? Oh, man, that's a really good question. And I think that you have to kind of do one and then people start to ask you to uh, participate in the next one. So I started... The first one that I did was at ITB, virtual ITB back in March. And it just came up in a conversation and somebody was like, hey, would you like to do this? And I was like, why not? It's kind of early because we like you know, literally founded the company. And then I got on a train and went to Berlin, right? (laughs) I was going to say you started in February, right? So that's a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. So it was a little crazy, but, and now then with the E20X, we kind of knew about it because uh, it was um, some of my, my colleagues, you know, uh, as an aside, entrepreneurs are, are pretty cool to each other. And it's nice to be able to reach out to other people that have kind of been down the path before, and they're really, really generally, especially in the hospitality technology community, open to helping others. So people will accept your request more often than not to like talk to them. So I talked to some past winners and so on, and they're like, you definitely need to do this. So we did it. And then we've been invited to more. And now it's like, okay, well, we need to actually focus on growing the business a little bit more than just getting <laughs> Quit awards. Quit doing contests. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Google it, find something that looks good. There's competitions throughout the entire year um, and just enter one and just have fun. I would say the same thing. I I think my answer is a little bit more pedestrian, which is that there is some tremendous value in setting aside time to do research about awards, speaking opportunities, publications that will accept your writing, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of mapping that all out on a spreadsheet and putting some dates in your calendar to try for that stuff. Like if you're really serious about 
you know, raising your profile or getting some attention for your company or whatever it is, the investment of time in the pure straight up nerdiness of making a spreadsheet will pay off over time. I totally agree. And it's not only pitch competitions or startup competitions, but just selecting what show you're going to go to because there's so many of them. And, you know, the shows and the associations that I was involved with in previous companies don't necessarily make sense for this company or potentially any future companies. So you really have to do your research, really have to ask people that go and find what buyer profiles are going to be there and see if they fit your targets. Although now that we've been talking about this, Stephen, I think we have a business idea. So maybe we can stop recording this interview and just go and brainstorm our plan for an easy tool to do this for people. So you grew up in Vermont. For such a small state, Vermont has produced a surprising number of guests on this show. So I have to ask you what I've asked them all before. Have you ever heard this? I did a consulting project in Vermont for several months and I heard this while I was there, but I cannot confirm that it is true. That there is a higher concentration of people in Vermont who are in the witness protection program than in any other state in the US. Have you ever heard that? Or are you in the witness protection program so you can't answer? You tell me. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I actually just got back from Vermont, right? And I, I, I grew up there. I lived there from, you know, the time I was born until I left uh, at 18 and to, to go to university. And when I was there last month, there was this article somebody posted on LinkedIn, and it showed relative lot sizes in the United States. And of course, I'm thinking like, okay, Montana, Wyoming, something like that. It's Vermont by... A lot. Oh, like the size of the acreage or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) and we were like hiding. I know. And we were hanging out. My daughters and I were hanging out at my uh, stepfather's hunting camp up on the border, right? That has like you know, I don't know, thirty acres of something like that. And uh, we just had a blast. Like, and we actually, you know, got within uh, accidentally about twenty feet of a mother and her bear cub. A really crazy experience. We got very, very close to deer. We saw so much wildlife, and it was it was really crazy. I love Vermont, though. I grew up about like thirty minutes north of of Stowe, you know, where Springer Miller is from, obviously. And it, it's really um, Vermonters are really uh, are really cool people, and I love every chance I I get to go back there. I've often wondered what it would have been like if I'd stayed, but great state. Thanks for uh, asking about that. Interesting that you did not directly answer or not answer about your participation in the program. So you, I don't think ever worked in a hotel or restaurant per se, but you've been in hospitality tech for 20 years. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened, how you wound up in this vertical? I definitely have worked in a restaurant. Oh, okay. Tell me about that too. (laughs) So I did everything from washing dishes to making salads to cleaning up and so on when I was when I was in high school. I moved to to New Orleans and and you know went to uni there and so on. And when I graduated, everybody was in um, telecom and e-commerce and so on. It was the latter part of the nineties, right? And then there was the dot Boston, and we all lost our jobs. So um, we kind of like went looking for you know what are we going to do to sort of recover here? And a friend of mine, he and another guy who's a hotelier in New Orleans had acquired a, a technology 
it was an early channel manager for my company in Austria, right? And uh, so they're like, hey, why don't you come over and, and, and see what you can do? And so I went to my first high tech in June uh, 2002, and I'd had one week of, of like training, you know? Perfect. And, and, and the channel manager didn't have any North American channels, right? None. So, and I didn't know any better. So I was basically like, you know, trying to pitch like people from hoteliers from Las Vegas and stuff. Hey, why don't you distribute your rooms on a Swiss destination management <laughs> channel that for hotels in Switzerland? I mean, and they're of like, course. what planet are you from? <laughs> but uh, it was a great introduction to the industry. And it's a funny story. And I could still joke about it with people and people that I met. And this is what I love about the industry. People that I met during that first show were like still friends and still colleagues. And we've worked together a number of times now. And there's just no place like the hospitality industry. I could not agree more. So I'm cutting out a lot of detail here, but you founded and then sold Scient, which was the integrations company that you founded in 2016 this past year in 2021. How did you decide that RoboSizeMe was your next move after having that company for so long? Well... Good question. And Scient was my first, like I'd been in a lot of startups, but Scient was the first one where I was a co-founder and we tackled something that was pretty interesting. And, you know, integrations, it's a challenge in the industry. And um, I'd had this theory that, you know, if you combined people with hospitality knowledge, business knowledge with technologists that developed hospitality knowledge, you would have a winning combination. It turned out it was true. Scient did mostly hospitality and travel. We also did transportation logistics and kind of reran the same playbook there. And it worked really well. So I started to hear about RPA and I started to kind of see where people were playing around with process automation and hospitality. And because there's just so many operationally vital yet highly manual processes, it just made sense. This was even like not, I wasn't even thinking great resignation or anything like that at the time. So I started calling up the majors, like the highest executives that I could get in touch with in the majors and, and, and also some consultants that work with the majors and, you know, just general, like, you know, the, the senior states people of the industry, right? The overwhelming thing that they told me was that we're all working on this. It takes a lot of time of our team to explain to these kind of like horizontal consultants how to do RPA and so on. But we're kind of all in on this. So what I saw from that is, okay, there's maybe an opportunity for smaller operators to get in and do the benefit. And um, one thing led to another. And then next thing you know, we made a company out of it. If you don't mind, will you take a step back and explain RPA, which is robotic process automation, and maybe a little bit of color on how it's different from machine learning and artificial intelligence? Because I know people will immediately lump those things together in their minds. Yeah, sure. So um, artificial intelligence and machine learning is basically creating... Uh, a situation where a computer is trained on some kind of a model that gives it an ability to sort of extrapolate what to do when it's presented with something that's slightly different but slightly related. So a, a good example of machine learning application in the hospitality industry is reading emails, right? It's, there's this thing called natural language processing, and this is a branch of machine learning. Uh, so there's a company in, in Germany that 
uh, I work closely with called Hotel Resbot, and they have an NLP, and they read reservation emails, right? And you can imagine how many different permutations of a reservation request that you could possibly have if anybody's writing it. Like if you write it versus like my mother writing it, you know, it's you coming from the industry, it's going to be quite clear. Uh, my mother writing it, it could be completely insane. You know? <laughs> so if your objective is to get a high percentage of the uh, number of reservations automatically processed, you need something that's adaptable. So that's what the machine learning uh, part of it does. You can combine machine learning with RPA, but RPA is more of like what we would call orchestration. So with RPA, you can use the user interface, for example. You don't even have to do any fancy integrations. Or you can also use APIs. You could interact with databases or, or reports like in Excel or something like that. And you take the data and you do something with it. So if you wanted to take a spreadsheet that had a bunch of rates from a revenue manager and put those into your CRS or something like that, that's a good use for an RPA robot because the robot is not having to decide either anything or much. It's just replacing what the human was, was doing. Whereas if you wanted the robot or the process to invent something based on some conditions, then artificial intelligence and machine learning is a good solution. Does it make sense? That makes absolute sense. So I'm going to say it back to you to make sure I understood it. If I were going to describe RPA to my mom, I would say that this is an instruction to do A with B, whereas artificial intelligence would be an instruction based on having done A with B several times, what would you do with C? Is that sort of right? Yeah, I can live with that. (laughs) We can cut that part out if I sound like a total idiot, but I feel like I get it. I think that there is probably some confusion with the use of the word robot. So I want to make sure that people understand that this is not a physical machine, but a process that is written out. Does that make sense? It totally does. And and a number of people have brought that up to me. The it's process automation or virtual process automation done on a, on a keyboard or done on a uh, PC, for example, but, and here's the, but, RPA or robotic process automation is the widely described term for it. There are publicly traded companies called like UiPath and Automation Anywhere and Blue Prism and so on that do RPA. And if you look in Gartner and you want to look up what is the best solution for process automation, you would look under RPA vendors, you know? So it's not up to you. This is not a creative or poetic choice that you've made to call it robotic. This is a an industry term and a standard that you need to stick with. Yes, exactly. So this is a convoluted question, or I have a lot of background that I want to give you first. On the labor side... I obviously, like everyone else, believe that the hotel business is ultimately going to have to reinvent the business model in in multiple ways in order to remain viable. To me, it's mostly about hotels have to pay people higher wages. And that may or may not be controversial. But I, I think if you just were like an outsider looking in, you'd be like, well, yeah, duh. Nobody wants to work for that little money, right? So I've heard a ton about solutions for reducing labor costs on the lower end or the least expensive end, meaning things like 
you know, flexible schedules and pay per room cleaned, robot housekeepers, robot pancake machines, like all that stuff. It makes me bristle for an assortment of different reasons. But I think part of the reason is that there seems to be, to me, so much more opportunity to be efficient in labor costs in more expensive labor. So sales, revenue strategy, like those types of jobs that, that are more expensive. I'm not sure if if this is a clear question, but I just wonder what you think and how something like RoboSize Me would fit into that. Sure. So we don't really like to talk about replacing people because that's not what the industry really needs now. The industry needs more people, not less, right? Mm-hmm. But what we want to talk about is really like automating the ordinary so that hospitality staff can be extraordinary, right? We want to get the people working with guests again and get the guest satisfaction up because, you know, if anybody's traveled this summer, it's been a bit of a rough experience, right? And on top of that, you know, I know a number of five-star hotels in Central Europe that literally close half of their rooms on a weekend, block them out, don't have any people staying in them, aren't making any revenue because it's the only way they can guarantee their service standards with the staff they have, right? So given this condition, and you did make a point that uh, there is a lot of target towards the lower end of the hospitality staff, but let's talk about rate loading season, right? We're in rate loading season now. Revenue people tell me that that's 100 to 150 hours of mind-numbing copying data, right? We built a robot that does this. It reads the the files from Lanyon, for example, and loads it into Opera or Opera Cloud or or Maestro PMS, right? Um, We've got others that, you know, group sales managers, companies tell me they cannot find a group sales manager. And then you go, I wonder why, because they have to work 12 hours a day and every other weekend, right? And most of that time is spent putting things into a CRM rather than speaking with actual customers and doing research and doing business. So you get all these PDFs, you got about like a three or 4% chance of actually getting that business, right? And people are hand filtering this. Well, this is something that RPA can do in a really straightforward way. We're not talking about a robot that's going to automate the response. We're talking about a robot that's going to filter you know, or a process automation that's going to filter, like, is this even in my city, right? That's one thing you're going to filter out. The second thing, if I did want to look at this one, do I have guest room availability? Well, you can look that up in a PMS. Do I have a banqueting space and meeting space? Well, I can look that up in the sales and catering system. What does my group displacement look like in the RMS? Well, I can run that too, right? Now what I can do is I can turn and score this and put it in an Excel or I can put it in a simple dashboard or something so that when the group sales manager is there, they can go, okay, out of these hundred PDFs that I got, you know, in the last couple of days, these 10, I have a pretty good chance of winning all the rest of them. I shouldn't waste any time on. Right. So it's not making, it's not replacing people. It's just helping them work smarter and taking the manual, like challenging, boring work out of their lives and letting them focus on stuff that is really productive and is really going to generate an actual job. (laughs) Yeah, right? And there's so many of these processes. It's 
just crazy. Mm -hmm. Just thinking back about the hour after hours periods of time I would spend when I was on property to key in information from one site to another site to another site to another, it just grosses me out. (laughs) What are some (laughs) of the things that you haven't maybe built a robot for yet, but you've heard a lot of people asking for? Or do do you have anything like that where you're like, oh, this would be a really cool nut to crack? Well, we've got like 150 different use cases that we're working through now. And every time we talk to a customer or a prospective customer, they've got a bunch more. So I think that it's what's actually super surprising is just how many things there are. And, you know, everybody's got a bunch of ideas, which is kind of cool because when you get on the phone, you're not talking to generally hotel IT staff. You're talking to the actual people that are doing the things today. And because RPA tools allow for really rapid iteration, like you can build something that works really fast and show it to people, they get to be creative too. And they get to be engaged in getting rid of some part of their job that they totally hate. (laughs) We are building like sort of off-the-shelf robots. They're sort of ready to go with a little tweaking. Then we've got uh, custom And that's where somebody just has something that they want. That's how they've always done it. Fine, we'll help you automate that. And then there's this other group that we're working on called microbots. And the microbots are pretty cheap. You know, they can be like 25 bucks a month. And they just automate like even an hour of somebody's time. But it's just this task that constantly has to be done every month. I'll give you an example. So there's uh, in Europe, every com- country like like Switzerland or, or Germany or France has this monthly reporting requirement where somebody has to go into the PMS, filter for all of the people who checked in that month, find out everybody that had a passport that is not from the country you're in, right? So how many Americans came? How many Brits came? How many people came from India? How many people came from South Africa? count all them up, log into a portal and start typing all these things in. And it's about uh, five pages long of a web form. And literally the last question is like, how long did it take you to fill this <laughs> nonsense in, right? Uh-huh. And so the robot does this in a you know, couple of minutes. And so what you do is it's cheap, the robot, it's fast, it's accurate. So you're like a hundred percent sure that you're going to, it's going to be accurate there. And you move something out of the daily grind that somebody totally hates and you don't have to train for that anymore. So when those staff turn over, they know how to do it. It's like gone out of the training uh, program. So it really checks a lot of boxes. You know, another one I think it checks is the idea that those types of tasks are so annoying that the quality level is probably not at, you know, you're probably not like, I'm going to show everyone how greatly I can fill in this form. You know what I mean? So there's probably a higher level for or higher likelihood of human error. Oh, yeah. I mean, even when you go back to the rate loading case, I talked with uh, some GMs and they're like, yeah, the accuracy just goes into the toilet after like day number two. <laughs> and, um, you know, the losses were were in high five figures when they would do audits later and see what they actually lost because, you know, somebody just was typing it in and they're just sick of it. I mean, we actually did some tests internally. We made it like a little competition, like 
how long can you manage to maintain accuracy by look having two monitors and type back? It's not very long. Huh, People that's get interesting. so bored after like an hour. You know, at the beginning, they're interested and they're engaged. And then it's just like, this sucks. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. I'm like, I'm just being forced by, you know, the whip at my back kind of thing. We like to make sure that all of our listeners come away from each episode of Top Floor with a couple of very specific, tangible tips they can try either in their businesses or in their lives. In addition to your hospitality technology career, you've lived what I think is a very exciting life as an expat and traveler. Living and working in, I think, eight countries is what I counted up. Um, how did you go from Vermont to New Orleans and Atlanta and end up working in Eastern Europe? Oh, yeah. Those are pretty good questions. Um, so I was uh, working at HBSI, which ended up being bought by IBS in, in Atlanta. And I got an opportunity to go over to their um, development center in South India, right? And I really liked it there. I'd been really interested in Indian culture for a long time and so on. And, and I loved Indian food. So I ended up going to India. I kind of engineered myself an opportunity and uh, just, you know, went there and I moved to New Delhi. Everyone told me that this was probably not the smartest idea to be <laughs> your first expat experience, but first I didn't listen to anybody. And so I just went and it was a great experience. It's not easy at all. I remember like one night because we had a lot of power outages, right? It was 2007. And I was sitting in my room and it was like 103 degrees in my bedroom at four o'clock in the morning. And we were out of power. And I had like this battery backup system, right? And the ceiling fan was moving like you know, <laughs> one revolution, like per hour or something. It was barely moving at all because the battery was totally dead. Uh. And I was really thinking like, what did I do to myself here? But you know what? I made so many friends and saw so many things. And I did a lot of work in the Far East and so on that, you know, still met people that I'm still working with today and things like that. And then when that time kind of, that chapter kind of came to an end, I got recruited to work um, in a job in, in, in Paris. That had to have been quite a shock, culture shock from Delhi with no fan to Paris. Well, yeah. But the thing is, is that Indians, they, like they call the, call the time zone IST, like India stretchable time. So they show up to meetings like 20 minutes late instead of French people. So that part was okay. like pretty, pretty like uh, similar. Everything <laughs> else was totally different. And I was really thinking about whether I take this job in, in Paris and I don't know French and I barely speak English. Right. So I was talking to, to people and they're like, do you know how hard it is to get a job if as an expat in France and somebody's offering to bring you there? You're crazy if you don't go. And of course, like my ancestors came from France, I don't know, like 500 years ago and so on. So I was like, okay, I got to just roll the dice and try it. Okay. So I just went to France and it was crazy. But I, I learned a lot and I again met a lot of people and had a lot of good experiences. And then I ended up uh, moving to the Czech Republic. We were doing some projects over here and, you know, I, I had some family reasons to come over here and so on. And while I was here, I had reconnected while I was in France with some Bulgarians that I'd worked with in the past, right? Uh, like more than like maybe 10 years ago or something like that. And um, we were looking for some outsourcing. And uh, so I started working with people there. 
So I was kind of like running back and forth between like Czech Republic and Bulgaria. And at one point back and forth to, to India again, working in areas like guest services, software and distribution and things like that. Uh, so, so that's how I ended up here. So it is really strange to be, you know, delivering mostly West, mostly like in US and, and Western Europe and so on from Central Eastern Europe, but it works really well. Well, and I can tell that you love it. What would you recommend to someone who was considering a move outside of their home country? Like any, maybe one or two top tips that you would say besides the, you know, be legal and get a visa, that kind of thing. Hmm. I mean, it's good if you, it is not an easy experience um, necessarily. I mean, some of my, you know, what would you call it? Like friends or whatever, um, they've gone the expat way where, you know, the company paid for everything and they lived kind of in a, you know, plastic bubble wherever they were and um, things like that. And that's not what I would do. I mean, that's not the type of experience that I was looking for, but definitely, you know, don't let anybody tell you too much about it because you might not do it. Just kind of roll the dice and just go for it and work it out as, uh, as it comes. All right. Switching gears back to RoboSize Me or at least to eliminating repetitive tasks. If I can't buy a virtual robot today, how would you suggest that hoteliers either reduce or eliminate repetitive tasks in their operation, or at least go about identifying them? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, um, sitting and, and observe, I mean, if you didn't want to use any tools at all, because there are tools that you can kind of install on people's PCs and it'll monitor their task for repetitive work and kind of tell you like how much time somebody's spending called That's task mining tools. Good one. Um, but, you know, just ask people or, or, or observe them or something like that. If you see somebody like typing, you know, transposing things from a piece of paper <laughs> to a computer, that's a good, good one to have a look at, right? <laughs> um, anything where people are taking PDFs and moving that into a system. Again, you know, OCR technology is old, it's 20 years old, more maybe. And that's a really good opportunity. Um, stuff in the back office and things like that. I mean, those are, you know, the reason that the RPA companies tend to focus on those financial areas is because that's where, you know, everybody has the same problem, you know, dealing with accounts payable, dealing with accounts receivable, dealing with um, bookkeeping entries and, and so on. We have reached the fortune-telling portion of our program today. So now's the time where we predict the future, maybe cast a spell or two, and then we'll come back later and see if we were right. What is one prediction that you have for the future of hospitality technology? So some things have changed dramatically in the 20 years that I've been in the industry, and some things have totally stayed the same. So what's stayed the same? I don't think we are any further along in systems integration than we were 20 years ago. And I've been involved in like, you know, open travel and HTNG and things like that. And we made this kind of like move as an industry towards standardizations like 2008 to like 2000. 13, 14, and now we're like rapidly moving away. Integrations are easier to work with than they used to be, but everybody's coming up with their own. And the reality is that the hospitality industry has got so many independent technology vendors that are listening directly to individual hotel groups, right? So I would predict that in the next 10 years, 
hospitality and technology still continues to be a very innovative space. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of the new cloud-based companies that are coming in and tackling very innovative challenges sort of dis- either be acquired by or sort of displace the legacy vendors. But I definitely expect to see some of the same issues in another 10 years. And I also am pretty sure that there's going to be some stuff that we don't even think about today that's going to be very, very important. You know, I did a a session uh, not too long ago with Simone Puerto on the metaverse, right? Hospitality in the metaverse. And that's just starting to become a thing, right? Hotels are building metaverse hotels. That's a bit crazy, but it's, it's true. And I kind of definitely feel like, you know, I mean, I was in my freshman year of, of in sophomore year of university when the internet started to become a thing, right? So for a while, I was like really at the bleeding edge. Now the metaverse comes in and I'm definitely feeling my age at this point. <laughs> but but I think it's going to be a real thing. So metaverse advances in in technology and still having integration problems. Those are my predictions. Well, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that that integration problem goes away. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about travel, the process of traveling, what would it be? Oh my God. It's been like, you know, more than 20 years since I started to pay attention to business travel and hotels, right? Why can't hotels act on guest preferences? Like it's just, just they never do. Like why, why is it that if we ask for a certain pillow type and and you know that that rarely, rarely actually comes uh, to fruition? And there was a few years ago, Pierre Bittner, he wrote an article about this, and he was like, you know, the app the, with normal prices, if you stay in a hotel for a couple of days, it's like the same thing that you would pay for a refrigerator, right? The refrigerator comes with a warranty, you know, it does something for you, it stays in your kitchen for a while and so on. Yet for the same price as a nice refrigerator for say a three or four days stay, you still can't get the kind of pillows that you want. So yeah, I'm it's not a I bad point. Like, I would kind of like at some point before I die just go into a hotel and actually have the three or four preferences be magically in the room that I've asked for. Interesting. So what's next for you and what's next for your company? Well, we're just at the start of the journey with RoboSize Me. So what for what is next for me is to grow the company, you know, basically expand our customer base and so on and try to build lots and lots of robots to help the industry uh, reduce, save time and, and focus more on their guests. And what's next for RoboSize Me? Expansion, growth, and building more robots. Excellent. Okay, folks, before we tell Stephen goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Stephen, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? <laughs> so um, when I was working in, in India, I was working for this um, company that did like guests. It was an early guest request or guest services software, right? And um, we had some very large customers in Shanghai and, and uh, Guangzhou in China. And so one day our support got a phone call from a very, very irate customer um, because what was happening is that they were taking the guest requests into the call center in English, and then they would type it into our software, which would then use a basically Google translated 
version of stuff, translate it into Mandarin, send it as a text message to the pager, and then the guest services staff would deliver it right to the room. And so <laughs> a little convoluted of a path. <laughs> and so so the, the guests had called, I guess it was in a, a big room on a high floor, you know, kind of important type of guest, um, called in and is uh, requested to to colas, right? To Coca-Colas. And was really totally unimpressed when the uh, the service delivery staff showed up with a platter with two condoms on it. <laughs> so uh, Google Translate esque services let you down. Yes, <laughs> uh, <so> it did. <laughs> well, you know what though, that uh, guest services d- did solve the problem of at achieving the preferences. It was just the wrong <laughs> preference. <laughs> Stephen Burke, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners learned a lot about virtual robots. I certainly did. And I really appreciate you writing up to the top floor. Thanks, Susan. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 54. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 